Parevces, Urachem Vort Miat Selek Mirzagrin, Yesaspe Tabit Medzorianem, Tif Make Ararat Talijits. Four years ago this month, in February of 2019, I began a new project as a member of the Knights of Vartan. It was something that I had wanted to do ever since I joined our brotherhood 15 months before. A podcast that would focus on the mission of the Knights and Daughters of Vartan and the men and women who make up our brotherhood and sisterhood. With the support of then Grand Commander Dr. Gary Zamanikian, we were off and running. Our first podcast episode was a profile of my lodge, Ararat Lodge Number 1 here in Boston. My very first guests were our then Sparabed Argishti Chaparian and someone else who also knew a thing or two about the Knights of Vartan, for he was twice Sparabed of Ararat Lodge and had served on the Avaktivan a few years before. My dad, Nachkin Sparabed Jack Mitzorian. In the 49 episodes since that first podcast, I've introduced you to knights and daughters from lodges and otyags across the United States, and not just the leaders of those lodges and otyags. We've discussed the issues that affect Armenians both here and in our motherland. We've highlighted our many humanitarian projects. We've taken you to several grand convocations, including most recently right here in Boston, Massachusetts. We've commemorated the Armenian Genocide with live video coverage each year from Times Square in New York City. And we've brought you our Talking Vartan podcast directly from Armenia. So much has happened in these last four years, and sadly, some of it has been tragic. Two wars, a nine-month blockade, and finally, the loss of Artsakh and the relocation of 120,000 refugees, many of them children. For our 50th podcast episode, I wanted to focus on those Artsakh refugees with an inspiring story of some local Boston area volunteers whose leader is a member of our brotherhood who just returned from Armenia after delivering 117 boxes containing more than 3,500 pounds of clothing and boots. Their story will touch your heart and inspire you. Dervaskin Kuzuyan has been, since 2002, the pastor of the Holy Trinity Armenian Apostolic Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was ordained to the priesthood 30 years ago this fall, the same year that he married his wife, Yeretskin Arpi Kuzuyan. I filmed that sacred ordination in 1994, and it was an honor to do so. Dervaskin and I have been friends since we were both teenagers, when, during his father's time as pastor, he served on the altar at Holy Trinity Church, and I sang in the choir. And when he returned from his 40 days of solitude after he was ordained to the priesthood, he and Yeretskin Arpi were my guests on the television program that I produced and hosted at that time, and which aired here in New England, Talking Armenian. For this Talking Vartan podcast, Dervaskin, who was also my brother in Ararat Lodge Number 1, and Yeretskin Arpi, joined me here at the studio and described how the idea for this humanitarian mission to help the refugees of Artsakh had come to be, following a visit Der Vaskin had made to Armenia this past fall. We had gone with a parish pilgrimage. It was our sixth time, I believe, uh, end of September, early October. It was more of a tourist kind of bear witness of what's going on. And there we saw the families that were displaced. Um, in prayer, public prayer services in Holy Echmiazin, we saw 
family after family gathering and, and, and their faces expressed nothing but torment. They were tearful teens and parents hugging their children and elderly praying on the ground. And so we came back with that impression, right? We didn't see the actual deep or, or displacement. We saw the after fact, aftermath. And um, when we came back, uh, what I generally do when we go on a pilgrimage like this, I address the Sunday school children. The families usually come with them, and we have like a youth conversation, youth sermon at the end of church. And there, it was bothering me all during Badr, like, what, what more can we do? What more can we do? And there, without um, having pre-planned anything. And this is October 15th. This is October 15th, yeah. yes. Um, just two days after we returned, I turned to the children and their families. I said, we have to do more. We can't have a beautiful church like this that we come to worship in every Sunday and know that our brothers and sisters half a world away have absolutely nothing but the shirt on their backs. We have to do more. What would our ancestors have done? What did they do after the genocide in the in early 1900s? We have to do nothing less than that. And I said, um, I challenged our, our Sunday school and our Armenian school and the families of our parish uh, to gather a clothing drive. Um, I said, that's at least the least t tangible thing we can do, but we can do that much. It's not going to change their lives. It's going to make it just a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. So we, the, the challenge is laid in front of them. I, in fact, I surprised Yeritskin by this as our superintendent. Uh, I didn't even mention this to her before that. So I put her on the spot. And, I, and, and, I, and it was very obvious yeah. because as he announced it, Everyone turned to me because he said, you know, and, and I'd like to also do this clothing drive and then hopefully with the edits he can go and deliver the clothing. And everyone looked at me and it was very clear from my face that it was the first I was also hearing of this grand plan. Um, so it really, the seeds, I guess, were planted on his trip, but it really just that morning just spoke to him and and that's how it surfaced well what went through your mind and heart when you heard this and and realized this was something that that obviously he really wanted to do how did you feel about it at first at first i was um i, I kind of wasn't quite sure where he was going with what he was saying and then i heard him announce about this clothing drive and i mean he's been to armenia many many times and i've never really seen him as affected as he did coming back on this trip. Um, you know, knowing, obviously, we had all been reading and hearing what was happening, but I know for him having been there firsthand and seeing it, it it did impact him and also everyone else that was on the pilgrimage with him. And, you know, we, we kind of joked as we were going through the process, every so often we'd be... Have a, let's have a clothing drive, he said. <laughs> let's, you know, it's it's going to be a piece of cake. And it was honestly, it was a challenge. Um, there were a lot of challenges that came up along the way. Not realizing, um, sometimes it's hard to do good. And we did face a lot of challenges with the process of how we were going to get the clothing there. What was not difficult was the response from the community. It was, I think he announced it on that Sunday. And by that Wednesday, we had dozens of bags outside Shia Hall where we were collecting. Within three days? Within three days, we had wow. dozens of bags. And I think after all is said and done, we never kept track and we probably should have kept track, but there were probably well over 1,500 bags of clothing, 2,000. I mean, we ended up shipping um, close to 3,500 pounds of clothing. 
and the outpouring from the entire community, not just our church, but the entire Armenian community of Boston and non-Armenian community, um, when people heard about what was happening, people really felt they wanted to help. Um, and we always have this sense of helplessness. We don't know what to do. And this was a tangible way that people could help their fe- their fellow brothers and sisters in Armenia, the displaced families of Artsakh. This was a tangible way we could help. And people came out in droves. And it was really heartwarming to see. You know, there was a two-year-old that was carrying a box of shoes oh. into Shia Hall. Um, and the number of volunteers that we had, over 70 different volunteers, giving their time because every article of clothing, every bag we received, every article of clothing had to be inspected. Um, We had to write down the countries of origin. Each box had to have an inventory of the number of pieces, what was inside, the countries of origin, the weight of the box, the weight of each individual article of clothing. It was a really big challenge. Um, And there were so many people along the way that helped make this happen, starting with the volunteers, Uh, But we worked very closely also with the Paros Foundation, who helped us in Armenia. And for those who may not know who the Paros Foundation is, tell us who they are. Yeah, they're they're a humanitarian. um, Because we've dealt with them in the Knights of Vartan. Did you? Yes. They're based out of California. Mm -hmm. Um, They bring humanitarian aid and and, and better the country of Armenia um, through building of homes, through um, establishing... um, uh, re-establishing schools, bettering schools, making them safer, bringing people into into livable home conditions, um, and many other um, non-material related efforts as well, such as finding jobs, finding uh, furniture, animals, place uh, p- types of work for people in Armenia. Um, they're a great foundation, and I'm really happy we, we connected with them. Uh, they were instrumental in helping us um, reach the four corners of Armenia. You had to make some decisions, you know, how were these boxes of clothing, these packages of clothing going to specifically get to Armenia? Who was going to be there to meet them? You know, you had to talk about the distribution. I mean, there was a lot to think about. How did you put that all together and make it a reality? That's a really great question because when he announced it in church on that Sunday, none of us knew. And I think quite honestly, if we had known the challenges that we were going to face, I'm pretty sure we would have, we would have, we would have maybe changed our motivation or changed our goal, our approach. So every step along the way, looking back, very easily we could have just stopped it because it it was challenging. You know, it got to the one point that just a few days before we were ready to ship, there was, you know, this roadblock that said you might actually have to write down not just the countries of origin of each article of clothing, but what the material is of each article of clothing. And Good these Lord. are these are requirements of customs in Armenia. So, um, you know, to back up a little bit, when he first had that idea, we came home that day, we talked about it, and we said, okay, well, we got to get this going. And so we reached out to a very good friend of ours, Shaka Derderian from Philadelphia, who um, has a tour company in Armenia, but she has great connections. And one thing I learned on this trip is everything happens by connections. It really is incredible how things happen. Like, you take an idea, and all of a sudden... You, you mention something and put it out there and all these little pieces come together because this person knows that person who knows that person and that's kind of how things happen. So the first person we reached out to was our friend Shake because we know she makes things happen. And so working with Shake, she connected us to the Paros Foundation, Peter Abadjian. 
working all together, we sort of, you know, a man we'd never met, but spent a lot of time talking to and group chats and figuring things out. And they made the connections that we needed. And ultimately, the process went through. We ended up working with the Ministry of the Interior and sending our shipment to the Ministry of the Interior. And they're the ones who received it from like when the shipment came through, but even finding a shipping company. And we worked with, I can't remember the name. Set up to merger from Cleveland. He has a shipping company that, that deals with um, Armenia quite often. And he was very instrumental and very generous in his approach. Uh, we had an option to send it by boat, which would take three, four months, and the mm. winter would be over. Right. Or send it by plane, which would be more expensive, but he made it very affordable for us. Uh, just as uh, he was touched by the entire um, idea of humanitarian aid to Armenia. I should add to this, though, is, you know, we, we could have purchased um, coats and boots and things of that sort in Armenia. We were told that the, at the initially mm-hmm. after the uh, displacements of Artsakh families, there was nothing left to buy in Armenia like right. this. But that soon rectified itself. So we could have done that. But what happened was it, it motivated our parish in ways we haven't seen in quite a long time. People want to do something to better the lives of other people. So all those clothes, those bags of clothes, you, you mentioned a moment ago, 2,000 bags, it was, it was um, healthy for the parish because the whole idea came from the gospel, right? Where Jesus says, when I, you see someone who's hungry, you give them something to eat. When you see someone who's thirsty, you give them something to drink. When you see someone who's cold, you give them something to wear, put a coat on, put firewood in their house. That's what motivated it, and it really had a rippling effect on our parish. And till today, I heard a great deal about it yesterday. It was healthy for both the Armenians here and the Armenians over in, in Armenia right now. Did you collect more than you th- thought you would? Far beyond our expectations. I drove in one day and I turned to our custodian and I said, The corner of our parking lot had a tent under it, mm-hmm. over it. And I said, What is all this? Why aren't you throwing this away? He said, Deadhide, these clothes keep pouring in. I said, these are clothes? These bags of clothes that people bring in, 30 bags, 20 bags, neighbors walking them in from the nearby, they've heard about it, and churches driving over from other parts of New England. So it wasn't just the parishioners of Holy Trinity the Church. The majority really just, reached out, didn't it? it the majority did. was Holy Trinity, for clearly. Yeah. Um, but we, have, we received support. Word got out. And I kept receiving phone calls from clergy and members of other parishes. Are, is this true? Are you truly doing this? Um, we'd love to bring X number of bags. I said, please do. You know, And that's how this really took off. But very quickly, very quickly became overwhelming because we... How so? Because we were getting, you know, 40, 50 bags a day. And we had a, a crew of volunteers and we would meet in Shia Hall and... Again, opening every bag, sorting it by children's clothes, women's clothes, men's clothes, tops, bottoms, boots, blankets, whatever it was. And so the first task was unload, like opening all those bags, sorting through them, putting them in the right place. Then we had to box them and then take an inventory. And it would be, you know, I remember very clearly one day, Shia Hall, um, the, it was almost like floor to ceiling full of bags. And we had made a really good dent one day. And we could actually see the floor and like the, the crew of volunteers. There must have been 12 volunteers that day. We were so excited. And just as we were about to wrap up that shift. Oh, I know where you're going with this. Someone pulled up yep. and said, I have 30 bags. Oh, no. <laughs> and, I, and, and someone actually said to me, you know, Yereskin, you really need to be happier when people bring donations <laughs> in. Because at that point, I was like, what are we going to do with 30 more bags? Um, but as Dead High said, I think people 
were eager to help and this was a way that they could help and it's also about being you know stewards of the environment we all live with such excess and that was evident with the way that people were bringing in bags and saying I could bring 20 more bags I don't need 15 coats I need two coats and they were emptying out their homes knowing that why should we have so much when there are people who have nothing it was beautiful to see that and hear that from a number of families and I think it was it was part of the process was for people to feel involved and and do what they could to help others. Did you decide at the very beginning of this process that once you had collected everything that the two of you would be personally going to Armenia to deliver it? Was that always yes, in that, the Yes, that's what my initial um, message was to the community and, and would do it as part of the ministry of Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. Because that's what this is, clearly. Because there is a concern that if we send it without anybody from here over there to distribute it, where would it go to get lost? Whatever, you've heard a million stories like that. Mm-hmm. This was a way that we could start to finish, take the clothes from the families, and place it in the hands of high, uh, Artsakh families. And that's, I think, what contributed to a lot of the bags coming in. People were very... Reassured? Reassured that their clothes were actually going to make it to the destination it was intended for. Now, the two of you left Boston on January the 16th. 15th. Was it the 15th? 15th, Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, you posted it on the 16th. We were traveling, I've got to be careful of that. Okay. Um, And that's one thing I do want to urge people to do. If you are able to and you want to, we're going to talk about the trip in detail here, but I strongly urge uh, our listeners to go to the Holy Trinity Armenian Apostolic Church Facebook page and you can go back to previous posts and you literally can follow this entire journey from start to finish because Dervaskin who and Yeretskin both of whom are with me here today chronicle the entire trip with photographs and very eloquent words describing each of the communities that they visited the people whom they met the reaction to those who were receiving these wonderful gifts. And so it was really, you really sort of kept a diary of the visit. So Yeretskin, you and Det had covered a lot of geography on this trip. How much? So we actually calculated. We covered um, 2,640 kilometers, and we visited eight of the 11 regions, including Yerevan. What was the longest drive that you had to take? It was our trip down south, which I don't know the kilometers, but I know that it was about a seven-hour drive. My goodness. To get from Yerevan to... Goris and Gapan and um, Kacharan. How did you decide where in Armenia you were going to go and make the distributions? And obviously, you had to know some people over there. You were talking about contacts. Boy, do they come in handy. Who were the people who helped you out, who got you around and took you to all of these places so that you could distribute yeah. this wonderful clothing? It's, uh, it was a team effort, no question about it. You guys can mention the Pottles Foundation. They connected everything together. The government, um, when, you, when they brought in 100-plus thousand people, they documented where they were sent. Wherever there was a home in the four corners of Armenia, that's where the documentation was and we knew and they knew that in this village in this region there was this many families 500,000 2,000 whatever it was um, and they knew that in every home what the needs were the how many children there were how many adults there were and so um, our clothes went over there and they had the inventory of what was in it and they knew where those clothes would do most benefit 
So we would go to the main areas of the largest population. Some were small, actually, but the, the villages that had uh, two families or the villages that had 400 families, uh, we would go to both so that it was a balancing act. It was a balance of, of, uh, of size and, and effort. So everybody received something that, uh, that um, we could reach. Everyone that we could reach received something. Their lists helped us distribute it. Because again, 100,000 plus people all pouring into the borders of Goris and then driving up to wherever they've been assigned to, they found a house in some village up north. Right. Someone had to keep track of that, and that was the government. Talk about the places that you did visit. What were the stops, and uh, what was the reaction from the locals when they saw you and what you had brought? So our first um, first trip, we, it was almost like we were getting our feet wet. So our first day was that we actually did the distribution was January 18th. We went to Gumri. And there, um, working with the Paros Foundation, because we were partnering together, many of the places we went, um, they have a process where they're interviewing families to see what their needs are because they're trying to find them housing. And so one of the people on our team, Marina Hachatrian, every place that we went, she would conduct interviews. And while she was conducting the interviews to help fulfill the needs of what the Paros Foundation is doing, um, we were helping to distribute boots and coats. You were saying interviews. She interviewed whom? The, she the, interviewed the, the families? families. Okay. The families to find out what their needs were. It really is such an impressive process. Like when you think about the fact that you have 100,000 displaced people and there's such a sense of organization. Um, one of the things that really, really impressed me, um, we met with the deputy mayor of Goris and um, Irina Yordanian, I believe. Yordanian. What was it? Yolyan. Irina, Irina Yolyan. Irina Yolyan. And she was an incredibly dynamic woman. Um, and one of the things that really impressed me was that of all the refugees that made their way to Armenia, they all came through Goris. And every single one of them was given housing. Not a single person was left on the streets. Somehow, the mayor's office of Goris found homes for all these people. Um, obviously, temporary temporary at first, where they were all housed when they first came to Goris. Um, and then from there, they were all sent to different regions for more permanent housing. But it was just, this entire process has been so impressive. But getting back to our first foray was on January 18th, and it was a, a day trip to Gumri. And when we went there, we ended up going into two families' homes. The first family was... Um, a very, very uh, Gurtsevads. Yeah, like a, savvy. A savvy, were, were... very classy woman. And she was sharing with us her family was had been put in this home. And I believe the government has been providing, paying rent for these families, I believe, until March 1st. And then after March 1st, they're, fend, they're left to fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. But this was one of those families that was living in a space that the rent was provided by the government. And... The woman said to us, she said, you know, and, and I was actually surprised because I was in my mind thinking, okay, you have these displaced families, they're living on the streets, they don't have anywhere to go, but everyone has been placed in a home. However, and the homes are furnished, but nothing belongs to them. Right. So this family, that they, this home that they're living in, nothing, she said, everything you see here, none of this is ours. It's all like they placed them in this home. and. And I think that was very hard for her. She was a woman that worked, I believe, in social services in 
Artsakh. Well, what people, a lot of people may not understand is that those who did leave Artsakh basically left with whatever they could carry and put in their cars, those who had cars, and that was it. Everything else was left there, you know, never to be seen again. So, yeah, they they were saying to you, none of this is ours. None of this is ours. Um, and this was that first home where you offered a prayer for that elderly grandmother who... She, um, is that the photograph yes. that, that you you have your, your blessing her and your hand is on her forehead? She there. mentioned her mother was in the back room and it caught my, my attention. So I said, can we see her? Can we go offer a prayer? Um, which she very willingly, very willingly took us in there. And there was this elderly, mighty, 94 years old, couldn't get out of bed. She'd been paralyzed for 15 years. And so they carried her grandson, who never spoke a word while we were there, carried her across the border. Um, so I went up to her and said, Mighty, this, I'm from the church. I come from the Armenian church. My name wasn't important. Um, I came to offer you a prayer. And she turned to me and she said, did you come just to see me? And I said, this is offering, if I tell her the truth, you know, that's one thing. But I wanted to give her as much hope as I could. I said, why else would I come, Mighty? I came to offer you a prayer. And just a smile on her face and her eyes lit up. And um, that was part of, and I think, one of the early stages of us seeing the ministry take uh, unfold in front of us here. Right. That one, I believe it was our first home, but I think it also had a big impact just because we actually spent time with the family and, and got to see them and, and just really sort of share their burden um, and asking. And again, because we were working with Pados Foundation, their goal was to find out what their needs were. And so we were there to listen to what their needs were. The second house we went to was a family who, again, had nothing. Um, the house was furnished, minimally furnished, but again, they said that nothing there was theirs. But they had... Um, they had lost their son in the gas explosion. So as families were making their way out of Artsakh, there was a gas explosion. And this, unfortunately, in this family, their son um, perished in that gas explosion. But it was, again, an opportunity for us to firsthand witness to and minister to families that were really going through hell and letting them know that there were people that cared and honestly, I feel like it provided more comfort for us than it probably did for them. But it was a good opportunity for us to really witness firsthand what's happening and what these people are experiencing. And that vision we have of, you know, people being homeless, thanks to the government of Goris, no one was left homeless and the government of Armenia placed everyone. Um, but to be in a home, but know that nothing in that home belongs to you is heartbreaking for these families. These families that had so much and they had a vibrant life in Artsakh that overnight ended. No, I just, as you were speaking, I was thinking you know, of those two homes, the men never spoke. Mm -hmm. It was always one lead woman who spoke and the resiliency of those, of those women taking the, the leadership of their family. The men, I think, were devastated. The women too, but they're, they're, they're taking care of the home as best they could, but the men never spoke. You also visited Vanadzor which is one of the other major cities in Armenia. What was Vanadzor like, and was the reception that you had there, was it the same as, as what you had seen in Gumri and in other locations? So Vanadzor was later on our trip. We did Gumri, Vanadzor, and Pert, and this is actually where our clothing drive 
clothes went. So when the government looked at what our clothing, the quantities of our clothing and what the needs were, they determined that was the region that our clothes would be the best fit. Mm -hmm. So they did ship our clothing to Gumri, Vanadzor and Perth. They split sort of a third, a third and a third to these different cities. Um, So Vanadzor, we met in City Hall and we had earlier the day before had been in Gumri where a third of our clothing had been distributed. And when we were in Gumri, our calculations were that there were 70 families, which were 391 people. So the clothing that we gave in Gumri met the needs of 70 families, 391 people. In Vanazor, there were 96 families that we were able to help with 420 individuals in those families. Um, They were very, it was very well received. Um, Interestingly, one of the first questions anyone would ask is, have these clothes been worn before? Um, that was some for some people that was a sticking point that they was, didn't was want clothing that had been worn before. But for 99 percent of the people, it was not an issue. Very clearly, I remember there was one woman who did not want to accept the clothing because it had been worn. But for everyone else, they were very grateful. The process was really interesting. A lot of this is sort of figuring things out as we go. So when we get when we got to the location, all those beautifully packed boxes had been disrupted um, because they had to go through it to make sure that the inventory matched what was in the boxes. And when they did that, they re- Didn't quite look the way it did when it got there, huh? Yes. Um, If you could see air quotes, you would know reorganized is what I'm saying. (laughs) And so they reorganized everything where the boxes that only contained women's coats might now contain- boots and coats and children's clothes and blankets. So everything was mixed. So when we got to the location, the first day was Gumri, the second day was Vanazor, um, we had to sort resort through everything. And the team worked really quickly and it's on the fly trying to figure things out, organizing. We did a resort of everything and decided the best way to meet the needs of people was to organize them and then put them in bags. So we would sort of pull two pairs of pants, two tops, women's medium, mark it on the bag and put it aside. And as people come up, the way that the process worked, because people were registered with the local towns, as people came up, they'd come to the government official, give their name, and the government official would check, okay, this family has a mother, a father, grandmother, three children, and they would give a slip of paper back to the family. That family would then come to the front line of our distribution and would say, okay, this is who's in the family. And the person who is at the front would say, what are the sizes? And they would tell us what sizes the family needs. And then our group would pull the bags for that family. If they had five individuals, three children, two boys, a girl, whatever, we'd pull all those bags with the sizes and then give it to the family. And they would go back to the front um, office where they would sign off to say, this is what I've received, and then go on their way. So the process was really very organized. It was kind of organized in chaos. Spite of, in spite it's, of all of this, in yeah. In spite of all of this, it was clearly organized chaos. Um, I remember that first day in Gumri, I think we were there for about seven or eight hours because we had to sort of resort everything, put it in bags, and people kept coming through. And you don't realize the time passing, but we were there for about seven or eight hours that day. The next day we were in Vanadzor. Um, and because we'd had that first day, we were a little bit more organized and, and things went a little bit quicker. We also had less time. So it's incredible what you do when you have to. 
and we just made it work. And again, it was that team of people that worked so hard. Um, you know, it, it wasn't like it was our mission, their mission. We all were there working together to do what we needed to help the people. It didn't matter whose idea it was. It didn't matter who organized it. It was just a team coming together to do good. And the next place you went to was in Tabush. Go ahead. Let's yes. go back to Vanazur for a second. Please. The city halls of all these towns we've been to, including Vanazur, are long and narrow. And when we were distributing, I noticed that the lines were out the door. The hallways were packed. And they just kept coming and coming. Word of mouth, they kept coming. They heard there is something going on in the city hall for us. We have to go see what it is. But also in Vanazur is where we found the need for more than just clothes. Uh, that's where we found the need for firewood. There are families that have to make a decision. Do they pay the rent or do they pay for food that month? Do they have any money left over to heat the house? And so there are a number of our parishioners who said, that you know, before we left, um, we don't have that kind of extra clothing. We don't live that way, but we want to do something to help. And so they put, they put money in my hand. Use it for the needs of the people as you see fit. And so Vanazur was the first place we found um, that we could actually do that in a very tangible way. And so we purchased firewood for 10 of the most destitute families we saw uh, that would provide them enough heat in their homes, uh, 10 families, 10 homes, for the month of February. And I thought that was a nice way to also lessen the burden of these families. Absolutely. We picked that same theme up later on in a different area we'll talk about later when we get there, but there was also that need as well. ...that we were going to distribute clothing because the weather had turned. Um, thankfully, we had the most skilled driver. His name was Yura, and he was a godsend because it's not he wasn't just a driver. He was our protector, our... Um, you know, he helped bring bags in and out of the, the van. He kept us entertained. He never, ever made us feel like we were not safe. He had such control. And as we all know, the roads in Armenia. Oh, yeah. Um, we long did a lot of winding like, roads. Long and winding up yeah. meant that it always came long and winding down. Yeah. And not once did we ever feel that we were not in the most capable hands. So we're so grateful to him and the entire team for keeping us safe while we were there. I drove up there myself in what had to be the thickest fog I have ever seen in my entire life anywhere. And that was a scary ride. Fog I mean, I made snow. it. Yeah. I made it. But my God, that was a scary ride. Now, uh, Dervaskin, you wanted to talk about something else. Um, do you remember what that was? So in the, in the, uh, and tell me where I should insert this, if you can. So we're you, talking about where we're in a Sunni region and we met with the prime minister. Now, you went from the south to the north, and I, there were times where you were literally within a mile or two of the Azerbaijani border. Yeah, 800 meters was the closest we, we came. How did that feel to be so close? I'll be honest with you. I didn't expect to be actually that close. Um, when they, when you're driving, the driver will tell you that that mountain over there is Nakhijavan. That mountain on the other side is Azerbaijan. You'll see their flags right along the way, and not realizing you're ever going to get that close to the border. Um, and then when you pull into a village like Bert or a small town like Bert, you realize people live like this every day with this fear of their children can't even go to school without fear of being. Um, shot by a sniper. Right. Unfortunately, it's the reality of the times. It is. Um, the, 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 the men of the village or the town villagers put up a wall in front of 
between the playground of, of an elementary school and the mountains of, I think it was not, uh, mountains of Azerbaijan. Right. So the children can play. So on one side is a gray wall. That's what the Azerbaijanis would see. On the other side, a beautiful, bright color painted with rainbows and this and that. And so the children were didn't know what's on the other side, but what they saw of that wall was a very happy wall. But it was for their for their protection, and that protection extended other places. To other schools, had bomb shelters being built as we were there. I visited some there too. Before we talk about your visit to Bert in Tavush province, uh, a city that holds a very dear place in my heart, as well as my family's. You were talking about the children. You saw a lot of children on this trip in every community that you visited. Tell me what they were like and how did they respond to your visit? And did you have a chance to talk to any of them? And what was their feelings? What was going through their minds and hearts? It it was clearly mixed. Uh, There were children who were expressionless, uh, clinging to their mother's legs as they're walking. Really not. um, We'd invite them forward to come try a coat or try on some boots, and they were very hesitant. They just didn't quite understand what was happening or very wary of what was happening. It's a trust factor. Their lives have been turned upside down. Mm -hmm. Um, There were children who were eager uh, to see what's going on. There was one boy... You had experience with a little girl drawing on a board, too. You should share that. But there was one boy in one of the towns he went to. He was um, about nine years old, and he was in the middle of a, of a city hall with a bunch of older men. And they're up there smoking, and they're talking, and they're bunking, bumping to each other. And this little boy is being bounced around, but he's not leaving. He's by himself. Finally, his turn came up, and he said... You know, we said, what are your needs? What can can we do for you? And the little boy said, I just want a pair of boots from my mother. My mother couldn't come because she's home taking care of our three, my three siblings. There's no father in this picture, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That no father in the picture was a very common experience, by the way. Yes. And so this nine-year-old boy left his home to take care of the needs of his mother as his mother was taking care of the needs of the other children in the house. And... He had just an expression on his face that said, this is what I'm going to do. This is a nine-year-old. I'm the man of the family. That type of attitude. He took charge of what he had to do, and he walked into City Hall, and he accomplished what he needed. He got the boots. He got the boots. God bless him. We posted that, actually. Yeah. That that, that boy was very impressive. If that doesn't tug at your heart, nothing will. One of the places we went, there was, it got escalated very quickly. Things were very orderly and smooth, and then as more and more people found out we were there, the the crowds got like larger and larger and faster and a little bit more aggressive because they wanted um, whatever they could get. And I remember there was just all kinds of like turmoil. It was a very small room, and we were that was one of the points that we were distributing the um, boots and coats that Paros Foundation had provided. And there was a little girl. There was an easel off to one side with newsprint, and there was a little girl oblivious sort of to what was happening around her and she was just drawing like every normal child would do she was drawing on the newsprint and my eye went to her because there was all this chaos going around her and she was just content drawing so I just went up next to her very quietly and started drawing so I would draw a little picture she would imitate the picture she would draw something I would imitate it there was there were no words exchanged between us but it was just a little girl being a little girl and I, I honed in on that. And it was 
just really touching to see that despite all this chaos and what no one should have to go through, she was just being a little kid, doing what kids do. And it was heartwarming to see that she was able to do that despite everything happening around her. What you drew was important too. The happy face. You drew a heart drew a ha- happy face. In really? There. How wonderful. That was and how gorgeous. hopeful too. How optimistic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I know that the two of you obviously were talking to everybody whom you met. Um, how was your Eastern Armenian? Were there any communications issues? Well, I mean, I know you both speak fluently, but you, you're Western Armenian, correct? We, I do not speak a word of Eastern Armenian. <laughs> okay. To be, Me neither. Yes. The only time we had, we had an interpreter with us oh, who sent the stage everywhere we went because there are so many different dialects. But the only time I find it to be truly challenging was we were in, last day we were in Vanazur. Uh, no, we were in Vardanis, Va- yeah. and a woman came up who I thought was speaking to me in a foreign language. I, there was no similarity Nothing to anything I've ever heard before, yeah. Yeah. and I was told she comes from a certain region of Artsakh. A lot of the Artsakh families spoke beautiful Armenian, but there's regions in deep in Artsakh that they spoke a very uh, local dialect that's very hard to, to understand. Our um, interpreter, one of our guides, Marine, her father was from that region, so she understood very clearly what the woman was saying. Oh, good. She came, she said, I'm looking for clothes for my two sons. I'm listening to her really, it was like a foreign language. Mm -hmm. Um, But she established what she needed to, she received what she needed to, and she left. Um, And that was the only time it was really that challenging, you know? Um, I think it was, I mean, we do both speak Armenian, we speak Western Armenian fluently, and I think that certainly helped. I feel... Sometimes it's easier for them to understand us than it is for us to understand them. But it was never really an issue. And because the crew that we had, everyone, you know, we had Armenian speakers, um, you know, fluent English and Armenian speakers. So we were never at a loss. Um, I think one of the biggest, the biggest ways to communicate was just smiling, smiling and hugging. And that really spoke volumes. I mean, even if we didn't speak a word of Armenian, that was able to express and to see the smiles returned and the hugs returned. And there were just so many people that were grateful um, that people cared. Now, you spent a night and a day in a city that holds a, a very dear place in my heart, which is the, the city of Bert in uh, Tavush province. And <laughs> from I, re- I read your social media post there, and you woke up, you woke up exactly <laughs> the same way that I did that first morning. And I, I'll never forget it. But it's 4.30 in the morning. Now, I'm an early riser. And I got up early every day that I was there, but all of a sudden at 4.30, and I was staying at this very lovely B&B in, uh, in Bert that a woman uh, named Anahit um, had owned, and she was friends with my mother and father. They had stayed there. And all of a sudden, 4.30, I'm here, gobble, 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 gobble. <laughs> what in the world is that? And I looked out the window, and it was already daylight. The sun was coming up, because this was in early September. And I'm looking out there, and there are these roosters down in the backyard, all over the place. So, of course, me being the audiophile that I am, I took my recorder, went out there, and I recorded the sounds. And I'm just like, this is just incredible. You also visited a school for the arts that was there, which was a school that I had visited during my... Mm. Yeah, I had visited there in my 2021 visit. And I, in fact, had been given a tour of the whole school. But you were all there in the main auditorium. One thing I did want to ask you about, because I know that you obviously, there were volunteers that were there that were helping you with the distribution, but you certainly didn't keep your hands in your pockets the whole time. You folks were out there, I I saw photos of you with bags in your hands, and you were doing everything everybody else was doing. 
were you sort of directing it since you all knew what was there? I mean, how did that all work out? Well, it was clearly a team effort. Yeah. Right? And we're part of the team, right? It was, we all did our part. We, from lifting firewood to lifting bags of clothes to distributing to giving them to the families. We did, we did our part. Um, you lead by example. You don't sit back. We're not there to sit back. There's only six of us, you know? Actually, it's- And then we also incorporated into the six the locals. So the teachers would help if we were distributing a school. Or right. if we were in city hall, city hall workers would help as well. We brought them into the picture. Some had some hesitation until they saw that we were serious about what we're doing and that we were rolling up our sleeves and doing it with them, not expecting them to do it for us. Of course. And, and that brought a lot of respect from, from that and it changed the relationship into a much more positive way. I was going to say the same thing about the music school, that when we got there, there were just really a mound of bags of clothing. And it was overwhelming to us too, even though we knew what it was. And so we didn't have much time there. So we just jumped right in. And the people there like, this, this can't happen. You know, this, there's no way that this can be distributed. It doesn't make sense. What are we going to do? And we said, yes, it can. And we showed them and really led by example and just jumped right in and started sorting. And when they saw what we were doing um, and they saw, you know, the men, the women, just jumping in and doing all the work, they saw what we were doing and, and realized, oh, this can be done. And so they jumped in. One thing that I need to comment on is this was very, very clear in this one location. The men did not help at all and were somewhat surprised really? to see our men in our group working. They Do you know why? They kind of just stood back and let the women do what needed to be done. I think they um, brought the clothes in from the trucks to the hall, and then that, that they saw that that was the end of their responsibility. From that point forward, it was the women's job to take the clothes. It's a cultural <laughs> thing. It was a cultural thing. And okay. I mean, it doesn't have to be something we dwell on, but it was interesting for us to see because I think it was important for them to see the example of the men in our group um, rolling up their sleeves and not just, you know, doing the men work of like moving heavy bags, but sorting through each article of clothing and trying to, you know, trying to create um, order out of what seemed like chaos. But that was, I think that's what our goal was. Um, We want them all to be independent. And we were there to help however we could. But everywhere we went, there was a team of people, local people, that without them, none of this would have happened. So we brought things over from America there, but it was really every step of the way it was a team effort. It's really hard to express how how much we relied on other people in order to make this happen. And the seed was planted at Holy Trinity that, that Sunday morning, October 15th. The seed was planted there, but it was an entire team and village that brought it to fruition. Tell me what you learned about the process that if God forbid you ever had to do this again, if it was ever necessary to do something like this again, what did you learn from having done it this time that would help make any future endeavor even smoother if, again, God forbid it, it was ever necessary? One thing I think is clear is uh, there's so many um, opportunities to produce clothing and shoes and uh, resources like that in Armenia, which would also provide people the jobs in the uh, bring income into the country. So we could do a lot. We could have done a lot of this there, order it there. And I think if we ever did this again, which I don't see happening, at least in the near future, there might be a phase two where we have to figure out what that phase two is. It probably will not be on this scale. But something, 
um, to utilize the resources that are actually in Armenia today. Uh, there are, there are, it, it is a growing economy. Slowly but surely, there are signs of hope in the city, uh, outside the city, in the factories, that there are jobs being uh, made available to people to produce. And I think that would be a double benefit for the land of Armenia if we bring in opportunities for them to continue producing and distribute those clothes. That was one of the biggest requests, like when we when we went to different homes or interviewed different people about what their needs are. Marine, who was interviewing them, would say, like, do you need clothes? Do you need furniture? Do you need food? Do you need firewood? And they would say, we want work. We want to work. We need you to help us find jobs. And that work ethic was really impressive, that here they lost everything and they didn't have the basic needs to survive, but they wanted work because they wanted to take, they wanted to support themselves, and the women just as much as the men too. Absolutely, yeah. And I never before. I mean, last time I was in Armenia was seven and a half years ago, and really was more of a touristic. It was a pilgrimage. It wasn't anything like we did this time, as far as going into the villages. But most of the places we went, the people in charge that got things done were women. And in my recent history, I don't remember seeing that in Armenia. So it was wonderful to see um, these really capable, compassionate, inspiring, and wonderful women that were taking care of all these needs. Um, I'm in no way saying that the men were not doing it, but it, it really impressed upon me to see how many women were in positions of authority, which in my recent experience don't recall seeing, um, but they're really... Uh, seeing so many of them getting so much work done and what would seem overwhelming like just I keep going back to the fact that in Goris all those refugees that came through not a single one was left homeless because of the work of the mayor's office um, a lot of it due to the deputy mayor who was a woman well I'll also add to that uh, in Goris the, the primate of Goris in the diocese of, of Sunik Haid uh, Magar Father Magar um, gave me a tour of his diocese, and I was amazed by what I saw. And that was true leadership and pastoral leadership at its finest. He kept an office for himself and his secretary. The rest of the entire building, he converted over to warehouses, a, wa a warehouse for food to give to these families. Mm. Bags of rice, bags of flour, bags of whatever you could imagine, from floor to ceiling. And he would personally go and deliver them. That, to me, was a true pastor at work. And this is the primate of his diocese. The other man in that same region was from Kajaran. I was hoping you were going to He was the mayor that. of that town, that city. Uh, most impressive man, I think is Manuel, I believe was his name. Mm -hmm. um, he invited us to a dinner with a room full of 30, 40, 50 men, young men and explained to us that these are the men from Kajaran who went to the borders to defend um, their city, their town, in the region of Sunik, personally, with weapons in hand, up into the, left their homes, up into the borders, including the local pastor. And these men were, you know, up, up to this point, everyone kept looking at us as like, we're heroes, we're giving them clothes to these people. That was the day we saw heroes. Those men, and they live in a very appropriately named town, uh, Kajaran, Kach, uh, Brave, Home of the home Brave. Home of the Brave. Right? Place of the Brave, whatever you want to translate it. The, they were truly leaders. And I was very impressed with that. Now, I'll never forget that. These men stood up when they needed to stand up, and they did it, and they protected their land until today. Because 
he tells us a story what he and his men that we're sitting with have done for that um, protection of that area of including, that region of Armenia, including Der Shirak, who including fought Der right Shirak, them. who absolutely took uh, took up weapons and went side by side with the men of that of that town and defended their borders. And in his talk, he said the mayor said, um, "We have decided. We decided. We had decided." that when we go up to the mountains of Sunik to protect our borders, that we will not be writing the last page of the story of Armenians. And that resonated with me, that he, his, his resolve, resolve was, was firm. We will not be writing the last page of our story. There will be a tomorrow. Okay, is there anything else? Did you celebrate Badarak while you were in Armenia? I didn't. I went to, we went to, to church on, on the middle Sunday in a local Yerevan church. It was a, a kind of a day off between two visits mm-hmm. um, and just stood amongst the faithful and just observed what the faithful are like. You know, there's a lot of chaos, a lot of in and out, lighting candles, this and that. But the faith of so many people touched us, um, young and old. And that part of your trip and, and who did you come in contact with? Yeah, so that was towards the end of our trip and we were um, winding down and so we were in Yerevan that day and um, not being Army Day, National Army Day, uh, the, the tradition is to go to Yerapalur, the cemetery of the Artsakh soldiers for the three wars. I've been there, yeah. Yeah, very powerful it's experience. Heart, it's heartbreaking, yeah. Touch, we just walked to the cemetery and saw families visiting their loved ones, their children. When I say children, 18, 19, 20-year-old boys. There are a few, there are older men as well, obviously, but the younger 18-year-old boy right out of high school, plopped, plopped into a, a middle of a conflict like that, ends up in the cemetery. It's heartbreaking. It is. And you see their siblings going up to their, their, their brothers, and uh, it, it was heart-wrenching. Um, there's incense burning everywhere, flags everywhere. Um, and also, just to give a, um, a visual, it's different than the cemeteries here because every single cemetery, every single plot has a large photo yes. of the deceased yeah. and every one of them is you see the life and all that life gone and it's a very beautifully impressive um, cemetery. I was you know, I was there early on a Sunday morning and walking through and all of a sudden I just heard this wailing and I looked over and there was a mother who was oh my goodness leaning over the grave of her son and just wailing uncontrollably you know, and, and he obviously had just died, or actually, I don't know that. I don't know if he had just died, but she was she was in, in such a, a terrible state. And boy, if that, it, if that doesn't bring it home to you, nothing will. It was really, it was just wrenching to see that. We were walking around, and as we finished our walk, we ended up at the chapel of Yara Pulur, and yes. we noticed there was a priest standing out there. And I did a double take because I never met him before, but he was uh, someone I had seen on on the internet um, during the war. He was one of the last three people to cross the border. I believe he was the last person to cross over the border into Armenia. He, his name was Father Hovanes Hovanisian. He was the uh, the priest of Dadivank, mm-hmm. um, and he met with us and greeted us very warmly and very. We met his wife, Yereskin Vira. Vira, yeah. Uh, they spoke with us, uh, told us their story. I mean, this man has a story. He's, to me, he's a hero. I mean, his body is, uh, is an experience into itself. There's shrapnel all over this man. 
um, from what he has seen and done. And he's now the chaplain of the cemetery. He takes care of the, the graves, blesses the graves, and the families who come to visit their loved ones. He is a truly remarkable man. And what did he say? He said, my prayer is and my belief is that within the year I will be going back to Dalivank to say the, celebrate the Badarak again. So may he may from his mouth to God's ears that the land of Artsakh remains in the spirit of Armenians and that someday we, we walk on to the land of Artsakh one more time. You're back now only a few days, perhaps even still a little bit jet-lagged, but tell me what goes through your mind and heart when you think of that entire experience from start to finish. You know, how do you think you will remember it, and how do you want those of us listening to feel about this trip? You know, it's, a, it's not a question that's been foreign to me. I haven't thought about it as, you know, we, we have different needs and different um, experiences here than they do in Armenia as far as the church goes. And I say to myself that we, we spend too much time worrying about the things that are not critical to life here. Important, but really not in, in the comparison of the bigger picture, it's not um, as important. There's life and death over there. Yes. Literally life and death. You don't have heat for two days, your children are not gonna make it to the third day. You don't have enough money to buy food, what are you gonna do, mm -hmm. right? Here it's more about do we make budgets, you know, do we things that are less life-threatening, life-altering. Um, and I wish we could bridge the gap a little bit. I think we started to with this experience that it's the only way we can live out our faith, the only reason we have a cross on our dome is to carry out the work of Jesus Christ. And he's telling us to go out and make the world a better place. Our parish, through this effort, started to do that. We can't let that ball drop. Uh, we have to take it to the next phase. Always take it to the next phase. Uh, live out your faith. And that's, that's the only thing I can say. And it has to be a collective parish-wide effort. It can't be the dead Haidnianiskin together leading the charge. It has to be those 70, 75 volunteers who came volunteer to continue to come. It has to be backing of the leadership of the parish. It has to be backed by the budget of the parish. It has to be backed by from the top down. And this is how we live our faith, and this is how we make the world a better place. Just a little drop of bu in the bucket, but it's a good drop, and a drop that make a difference in the lives of people. Well, any journey of a thousand miles begins, as the ancient Chinese proverb uh, reads, with a single step. Yet it's seen what goes through your mind and heart when you think about this experience that you have just had. I think we actually talked about this. As wonderful as it was, as impactful and meaningful as it was, my big question is what's next? That's a very good question. And who has the answer right now? Because there is still so much that needs to be done and still so much uncertainty in that part of the world. But you have made a difference. I know that the people in your parish obviously feel that way, which is why they were so generous with their clothing and their money in some cases and all of that. And I certainly know that the people in Artsakh, the families, the refugees, certainly feel it. I want to thank the two of you for sharing this wonderful experience uh, with us here and our listeners on the Talking Vartan podcast. Welcome home, first of all. Thank you. And you and I were talking very briefly just before we started the recording. This is your 30th anniversary. This will be my 30th anniversary. As a priest, as an Armenian priest, I will never forget to this day your ordination at Holy Trinity Armenian Apostolic Church, your father, Dermampre Kuzuyan, was up there, and there was one moment I will never, ever forget. And that was the moment that your pastoral name was read aloud or spoken aloud for the very first time from the altar. And your father's voice 
broke. It cracked when he said it. And I immediately looked over. I was videotaping the event for, uh, for the church and for your family. And I immediately looked over to your family and um, your mother, Yaretsky, and God rest her soul, and your two sisters and you were all there. And can I say it? You were all were very emotional at that moment. It's a beautiful name. Oh, it was a beautiful day. And I know that, uh, you know, you, you've had so many wonderful experiences as, as the pastor. What is the thing about being a pastor that really touches you the most, that keeps it fresh for you after all of these years? It's being with the people. Every day is different. Every story is different. You know, we all have the same types of pains and, and, and heartaches and joys and celebrations, but for everyone it's individual, everyone it's personal. And to be able to journey like that with people. I, I personally love taking the faith of our church and making it real for 21st century minds. Uh, so it's not just um, an ancient story from an ancient book, but it's, it's actually a living, living uh, way of life. And I love being able to do that. But let me go back to one thing you just said with, with, with the name that was given to me. Please. I knew Vasky and Catholicos fairly well as a student there, and, and he knew my father very well, and so I knew there was a connection there. But um, when um, when we were doing this, a number of times my mind went to him, and I said to myself, "How are we doing? How am I doing?" And I felt like he's patting me on the back, saying, "Good job, Vas. Good job." He was I'm a sure goes during the earthquake. Yes. And the reason why this resonated so much, I you think so powerfully. You were in so seminary at the time, weren't you? I was in seminary at the time. I yeah. was at the earthquake, in the earthquake when it happened. And I think that's why I reacted to what's happening here in a little bit of a more um, proactive way um, than I thought I, I, I probably would have otherwise. But it just resonated so much with what happened in 1988 this is the same thing happening again. Okay, you don't have the destruction of buildings, but we left the buildings, right? Correct. So we did have that. We have displaced families. We have all of that was resurfacing. Uh, so when we walked through the streets of Gumri, I kept telling Yeritsky and the people we were with, this is what this was like, this is what this was like, this building collapsed, this build, and I, and I just, you could picture the chaos of 1988. And I think that's tied all into this, you know? It's, it's our story. It's not their story in Armenia. It's our story as Armenians. That's mm -hmm. why we're doing this, right? You don't live alone in the, in the Christian faith. You live in a community. Our community is the Armenian Christian community. That's what we're doing. And the community, both here and in Armenia, not only among the refugees of Artsakh, but uh, all of the people whom you came into contact with during your visit in January of 2024, I think are all a little bit closer now, too, as a result. Thank you both very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on our program and uh, for sharing these wonderful recent memories. But I have a feeling you're never going to forget this trip as long as you live. Very different. Thank you, David. This is a wonderful you. opportunity. Thank you so much for letting us share our mission. My very special thanks to my friend and fellow Osped Dervasken Kuzuyan and Yeretskin Arpi Kuzuyan from Holy Trinity Armenian Apostolic Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts for recalling their recent visit to Armenia with us. Their mission, with the help of countless volunteers on both sides of the Atlantic, can touch and inspire us all. 
Just this past weekend, a gala was held in Glendale, California, hosted by the Knights of Vartan Los Angeles Tri-Lodge. The money raised there will be used to help renovate and enlarge kindergarten number three in the border village of Chambarak. There is still much to be done, and our brothers and sisters from Artsakh need our help. We've been talking during this podcast about a very special and meaningful visit to Armenia. Well, there will be another visit to our homeland later this year that I'd like to invite you to be a part of. Our Veratats Haidenik, the return to the fatherland. It's a chance for you to see firsthand how your efforts in the Knights and Daughters of Vartan are helping our brothers and sisters there to have a better life. We will visit the sites of some of our humanitarian projects, meet the people who work with us in Armenia, and more important, those whose lives have changed for the better because of our efforts. We'll sightsee, we'll visit historical and cultural landmarks, enjoy some fabulous Armenian meals, and enjoy the fellowship of our fellow knights and daughters. The dates for this year's Veratats Haidenik are September 15th through the 22nd, but as always, you're encouraged to arrive early and stay later, for there is so much to enjoy and explore throughout Armenia. I can't wait to go back myself, and I hope to see you there. The beautiful Armenia Marriott Hotel in Republic Square, where our Knights and Daughters of Vartan office is located, will be our starting off point for our daily activities. And there will be a reduced room rate for Knights and Daughters of Vartan who are attending the Veritats Haidenik. We're going to have much more on this in the weeks and months ahead, but book your flights now whether it be Air France, Lufthansa, Qatar, or any of the other airlines that make connections to Yerevan. Veritas Haidenik 8, our return to the fatherland this September. So stay tuned. We also hope that you'll be joining us in Fresno, California this July for our grand convocation. Yeprat Lodge and Ali Tsotyak are our hosts. This year's gathering will be from July 11th through the 13th, but as we do with our Veratats Haidenik pilgrimage, we urge you and your loved ones to join us early and stay later. California, here we come. Grand Convocation 2024 in Fresno. Before both of these events, we will, as we do every year, commemorate the anniversary of the Armenian Genocide. Many states and commonwealths hold official commemoration ceremonies. We certainly do here in Boston. But since 1985, the Knights of Vartan has sponsored the annual Genocide Commemoration in Times Square, New York. This year it will be held on Sunday, April 21st at Broadway and 43rd Streets, the heart of New York City's theater district. Check with your lodges and otyugs, those of you in the Northeast, for upcoming information regarding transportation. That will all be forthcoming in the weeks ahead. For those of you who will not be able to attend the Times Square commemoration, you can still participate in it. The Knights and Daughters of Vartan will provide live video coverage of the event. I'll be serving as host and producer of that coverage, which will begin 15 minutes before the start of the official program. Our live video coverage will be available through the Knights and Daughters of Vartan and the Talking Vartan YouTube and Facebook channels. We'll have the latest on all of our upcoming events this year on Knights and Daughters of Vartan social media, plus our e-newsletter, the Avaride, and of course, from your own spot of beds in Diruiz. 
all Knights and Daughters of Vartan Media, with the exception of this podcast, is managed by Liaison Koharpalyan in Yerevan. You can reach her directly at knightsofvartan at gmail.com. You can reach me, David Medzorian, at talkingvartanpodcast at gmail.com. One word, talkingvartanpodcast at gmail.com. With any questions, comments, and suggestions about this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, as always, to Mal Barsamian for our theme music, Lorki Lorki, from his album, One Take, Armenian Dance Songs. Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast is the exclusive property of the Knights and Daughters of Vartan and me, Osped David Medzorian. Any use of this program without the expressed written permission of both parties is prohibited. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. Thank you for your service to the Knights and Daughters of Vartan. I'm Osped David Medzorian of Ararat Lodge No. 1 here in Boston. Shinoraganem, Sideli Paregamner. Thank you.